Hello, and thank you for joining us again on Into the Prey. We've got a quick favour to ask you guys before listening to this week's episode. We want to ask you to go ahead to rate and review Into the Prey so that we can lift the level of what we're doing further. Visibility in the podcast charts would help with that massively. It would also help to address the imbalance where folk can often be very specific and more than willing to leave reviews or so-called reviews when they're not happy with what we're doing. So there are, we believe, a vast majority of you who are happy and appreciative and grateful. It'd be very good to convert that into rates and reviews that give us a more reflective presence in the podcast chart so if you go ahead and do that we've also got a new patreon page if you want to become one of our patrons stroke supporters please do follow that link look at the information and consider doing that as well thanks again for listening and please do feel free to use the contact page to drop us a line with any questions thoughts or reflections the devil wants that on the one half is the blessing camp and on the other half is the repent camp that's what the devil wants okay and that is what's happening but actually, it comes back to this misunderstanding of what it means to, to know and worship and love a good God. Is that the blessing is the repentance. God, for all intents and purposes, needn't be there. And we need to recapture a sense of the godness of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God. Hello everybody and welcome to today's Friday episode of Into the Prey. I want to do something slightly different today and read to you the whole chapter from my book, Chapter 7, entitled Him, H-I-M, Him. Actually guys, I think this will just have to be an excerpt rather than the whole chapter for the sake of time. Let me explain why. Today is Black Friday and for most of us that will mean we're bombarded with marketing tools and adverts and in one sense, it's inescapable, but I don't know about you, but I, I didn't know until recently where the etymology of Black Friday came from. Black Friday is really an old um, reference to um, shops that used to, in a sense, spend a lot of the year in the red, in the negative, but through um, promoting dis- heavily discounted items, that kind of thing, they were able to move from the red into the black, hence Black Friday. And so there's this connotation of going from a negative in debt into the positive, into the black. And I want to do that today by picking up the, the prophet Hosea and Ezekiel. And I'm not going to do this comprehensively, so don't worry, this isn't, in a, you know, I, I don't think I even could do it comprehensively. But I want to, in a sense, pick up Hosea and Ezekiel together as, as prophets who, in varying extents, to varying degrees, um, I think showcase one of the most important aspects of knowing God walking and loving with Jesus, loving and walking with Jesus. Now, we we're, I'm doing this because our season, which is fast coming to an end as we approach the end of um, the year, is called all the prophets. Now, for those of you who might not be aware, and just to jog your memory, if you did, this is coming from Luke 24 and the two disciples who walked to the road of Emmaus when Jesus came alongside them and opened up to them all the scriptures. And all the all the prophets concerning himself. I won't recap that now. If you if you want to go back and listen to that, it's all there. And we've had various different guests on to feature teaching on different um, prophets. We've you know again they're all there for you to go and hear. But we've had no one really so far talking about Hosea and or Ezekiel. And we'll, in in the next few weeks, I would love to try and find some guys to come on and do some more content for us if we can. So watch this space. But I want to pick up. Hosea and Ezekiel in a kind of hybrid fashion today because it's Hosea particularly as a book and the message, the redeeming message 
of Hosea, but more so the the showcasing of who God is himself, of, of how Jesus is not only coming as a judge, but he's coming as a bridegroom. That's been a signature thing for me, and indeed I think it should be a signature thing for every single Christian. This isn't just a, a personal preference. This is, a, I think, at the summit of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to love and, and follow Jesus. So I want to, what I want to do today, just keeping in mind the Black Friday reality that we're bombarded, surrounded by, I want to make this in a sense a two-part, bridging today's Friday episode featuring all the prophets and thinking about Hosea and Ezekiel, as you're about to hear, with our session on Friday, our teaching session on the City of Temples. Um, this coming Sunday, I'm going to go through the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 as we approach the end of that book. And you'll see and you'll understand, I hope, that the focus on Hosea and stroke Ezekiel today um, relates directly to to this teaching as we begin to go through with that desire to keep on asking the Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom of rev- spirit of um, wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, so that as we read familiar passages like one Corinthians thirteen, that we that we're flawed by the Spirit of God, that we're filled. We keep on asking as children, Lord, please fill us with your Spirit presently and continuously. Please give us an understanding and a wisdom and a revelation about who you are as we read these passages, about about what love really is, about who you really are as love. You know, love is a verb, but also love preeminently is a noun, and God is love. So today what I want to do is um, invite you to come and listen to that teaching for 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3 on Sunday. But today, to pick up this focus of all the prophets, and again, as I say, hoping to get others to come in and add more flesh to this, I want to offer my very best, which I think was in my book, Body Zero. I gave a whole chapter to um, a focus on Ezekiel chapter 16, but also thinking of the redeeming love of um, Hosea, and I'll, I'll refer to both of those throughout. So what I'm going to do now is read to you this chapter, chapter seven of Body Zero, entitled Him, H-I-M. And I can't actually remember, let me just tell you this quickly before I go to the reading. I, I can't remember if I say this in the book or not, but the, where, you might wonder why why would you entitle that Him, H-I-M? Well, it came from, if you remember, some of you will know at least, that there was a couple of films called The um, Woman in Black. It's kind of like a ghost story stroke children it's not a children's film but it's you know it's a 12 it's not a horror film as per se but anyway in when those films were you know out and doing the rounds i remember seeing i think it was the sequel to it i remember seeing an advert on a bus and the hashtag trend for that was just simply she and i remember thinking at the time that was that was i felt i felt my attention grabbed by that at the time i thought that's very evocative it was very i thought it was really clever the way they did that forgive me it might have been her it was either she or her um but the point of that was it, it was it was conjuring as it were conjuring this sense of menace this this infamy about this ghost this you know this demonic presence and so on and it, you know, it, surrounding the film, the atmospheric kind of haunting of the film. Um, by the way, this touches on a on a, a broader conversation, which would, maybe would be quite interesting to have at some point. You know, should Christians wa- watch, you know, films with the demonic in? I remember doing a, a Facebook post on that years ago when we were still using Facebook, just to see what people thought. You know, as a, this is a complete aside, and I'm dry, digressing now, but 
I'm always I always find myself drawn to films like that because I'm interested to see how the spiritual realm is um, portrayed, how it's depicted. Um, and of course, some are completely unsuitable and, and firm no nos, but others I think are, are harmless. You know. Anyway, all that to say is that that's where the title of my my chapter "Him" came from because in any small way in which a kind of fictitious, imagined ghost story could be a powerful kind of presence in our thinking or in our psyche um, or in our entertainment or whatever, it pales into utter insignificance compared to the one who's coming. Um, And as I refer to in this chapter, the voice of dread, um, he's coming, the wrath of the lamb is a thing, you know. So anyway, without further ado, let me just read this chapter to you which i i trust will showcase my very best efforts to to do just that to showcase the one who i believe we are to be floored by time and time again and on this black friday that we would know ourselves maybe for some of us more than others jolted out of thinking about deals savings buying things and jolted into from the from that red into the black of his rede- into the positive redemption of of his love and how that should be something that we never graduate from, that we never get used to, that we never become familiar with, but that is a constant sense of like a, a firebrand on our hearts to remind us how glorious this one is that we get to come to every single day. So I trust this will be a blessing. Body Zero, Radical Preparation for the Return of Christ, Chapter 7, Him. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Our Beloved Dressed in expensive clothes, the man and woman stood before each other gazing deeply into one another's eyes. Complete with perfectly tailored shirt and tie, the man wears a finely shaped suit, sharp and precise like his chiselled physique. His shoes are buffed, his face freshly shaven with compassion conveyed from every crease. The woman wears a stunning white gown and pretty diamond shoes. Her dress displays her beauty modestly, but in a breathtaking way. She wears bracelets and earrings that point to the love that she has received and the life she has been given. Her hair and her visage are like irreplaceable portraits of art, framed by a smile like a summer dawn. Under the crescent moon, her jewellery sparkles next to the dancing candlelight, flickering under the evening sky. Their marriage fragrances linger everywhere, fusing together as they laugh excitedly, dreaming only of what lies ahead. Their desire for one another is overwhelming, much like the glory that covers the scene. But then, slowly folding her arms, the woman stiffens. She raises an eyebrow and takes a step back into a loveless cavern, a condescending spirit trespassing the moment, an atmosphere of darkness eroding the glory. It's awkward and anxious, and the man's heart begins to race out of all rhythm as he wonders what on earth could be wrong. Fear postures to seize his soul as he imagines the worst. Releasing her arm, though adoring her still, 
with memories of companionship lapping his mind. He knew this intimacy was slipping away like a halo of smoke. Now the woman lurking in the dark looks stern and selfish and indifferent, her smile eclipsed as an absence of love crescendos. In irritation, she says to the man sharply, what is it that you want from me? What's the first, the most important, what's the greatest, the most sacred thing to you? The man inhales deeply and pauses as he looks at her with all the love of his life invested. No real thoughts required and replies, why, that's easy. For you to love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. That's the first and the most important thing to me, and it always will be. The woman's expression in response conveys a degree of awkwardness that borders on contempt. Biting her bottom lip with pouting vanity and averting her gaze furtively with eyes of shame, she pauses, then leaves hurriedly without finding the courage to honour the man's answer with a dignified response. Her fragrance quickly fades. With part of his very self now gone, the man suddenly stands alone by the candle, as though frozen in time, naked and exposed somehow, remaining soft. His merciful heart fills and empties and fills once again. With churning arrhythmias of body and soul, the man continues to believe in the woman, on whom all his affection is forever set. With tears in his eyes, he steadfastly persists in love, unrelenting, for a joy that had been set before him, for a joy that will be set before him once again. The Lord's Faithless Bride If you forced me to, if you really wanted me to pinpoint a part of the Bible that I might classify as my favourite passage, I would probably go to Ezekiel chapter 16. I can't think of another part of the Bible that unleashes graphic detail in quite the same way so as to stir my soul out of its often congealed state. Apart from the last two days of Jesus' life as recorded in the Gospels, and perhaps apart from the tenderness of Naomi and Ruth's serendipity with Boaz, or Joseph's reunion with his family through tears, I can't think of anywhere else in the Bible that showcases the loving beauty of Yahweh so powerfully so as to soften the persistent hardness of my heart. The poetic paraphrase of Matthew 22 verses 35 to 38 above is just the same. It injects my heart with eternity in readiness for the return of Christ. When I read Ezekiel chapter 16, my heart is pierced. Every single time I revisit the chapter, I am undone, though not as deeply as I would hope it to be. My redeemed sojourning heart is scarred with pathways of whoring, and oh, how I need saving. Were it not for the covenantal loving steadfastness of God, this hesed of old, where on earth would we be? His mercies are truly new every morning. No, we're not to feel shame. We are the redeemed of the Lord, but we are to blush. And when I think of the scene that God has painted here in Ezekiel 16, all in order to shake me from my slovenly spirituality, isn't blushing the least I can give. At the beginning of the chapter, Ezekiel hears the voice of the Lord again. 
In many ways for the prophet, this must have been like a dread voice to hear and a bittersweet harmony to receive. Recall the divine pathos from chapter 3? Rebuking every laissez-faire cultural attitude towards unfaithfulness today, rejecting every celestial cela-vie, we are to be stripped to the bone in beholding how sickeningly adulterous Jerusalem has become. God meant Ezekiel's words to humiliate and convict his people, for this is exactly what they needed. Israel's unfaithfulness is abhorrent, as was Gomer's with Hosea, as was Peter's with Yeshua, as is ours today in the body of Christ. The Son of Man walks past a newborn baby lying in the mud and the grime on the cold, hard floor. No one is there to wash or swaddle the baby girl or even cut her umbilical cord. No one alive, at least. Perhaps the uncut umbilical is to signify the death of the mother during birth. We just don't know. But no one is there to care for the newborn baby. The man picks the infant up with tenderness and compassion, washing and caring for her. He adorns her with every good gift and wisdom that could ever be needed or wanted. The baby girl is showered in love and affection and blanketed in adoption and treated to every conceivable cherry for every conceivable cake. She is blessed abundantly with clothes and bracelets and earrings and the finest of all jewelries, and she is clothed and protected in her dignity when she reaches puberty. Like the mighty Boaz covering Ruth, so too does the kinsman cover the young woman, for a redeemer was present nearer than she knew. Then we see the baby girl has grown and is stood before her lover and husband at a wedding, but she abandons him, her very best friend. She sleeps with every man in the town using the gifts her husband had given her to fund her promiscuous adultery using the secrets of his heart to navigate her wayward path. This mingled wedding day scene of distressed parent, forsaken lover and shameless whore represents the deepest pain possible and the blue-hot centre of the suffering pathos of God. But it is precisely this betrayal, adultery and scorning of holy vows that is the stunning context of the coming bridegroom king, Jesus Christ the Messiah, this heart-piercing context of abhorrent spiritual adultery, of humiliation and conviction, is precisely the invitation from God to the church today, who must reform around this kind of coming king. Yes, we will blush. Yes, we will be cut to the heart. But oh, how we will also kiss the sun. Let me explain. The Spiritual Adultery of Great Britain over the last 75 years in Great Britain, since the end of the Second World War, we have increasingly witnessed the body of Jesus Christ being pushed more to the fringes of society than at any other point in our history. This is without exaggeration. The once beating spiritual heart of the country, a compass and a lighthouse for all, has been ripped out and discarded into wastelands of the secular. Britain has long since stopped being a Christian nation, despite the quality of our heritage under saints of old, that I believe will be honoured by the grace of God. See Psalm 37, verse 25. As we have the courage of our convictions to adopt body zero, 
we must acknowledge that we are now a secular nation, but one characterized by a degenerate form of intolerant tolerance, the perfect breeding grounds for Islam and other paradigms of counterfeit faith to increasingly take root. Where once Whitfields and Wesleys thundered unto the glory of God from our church pulpits, these days we have Islamic imams preaching from the Quran and mosques popping up in every nook and cranny of the UK. In the words of the very brave Gavin Ashenden, former chaplain to Queen Elizabeth II, who resigned from his role in 2017 because of this, the Church of England has opted for a kind of spiritualised socialism and feminism in opposition to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is much more comfortable with politics and power than it is with the Holy Spirit. Indeed, Ashenden is correct. The instituted church of this nation is an accelerating car off the edge of a cliff, a counterfeit body hanging itself from a tree, the very worst kind of suicide mission. I just need to quickly pause here to say that since writing Body Zero in 2019 and what I've just said there about Gavin Ashenden, Gavin has actually converted to Catholicism. We had him and Michael Nazir Ali recently on the podcast and we've made a statement about that, so please go ahead and see that on firebrandnotes.com. The charismatic movement throughout Great Britain in the 1980s brought beautiful renewal to much of the body of Christ, but also much that was counterfeit. Mooing and barking and roaring and clucking in church pews was not at all what was needed then, and it is certainly not what we really need now. In that sense, yes, let's very much hashtag empty the pews. Fake charisms at the behest of fake prophetic teaching and fake prophetic promises from dubious influences from America during this time achieved untold damage to the body of Christ by cementing other polar extremities within denominational expressions of the church, namely forcing the hand of those who now pitch their tents at camp cessation. Toronto wasn't a revival, but, could, but it could have been renewal for the entire UK church. For sure, if I was a devil and I hated the church with utter, all-consuming hatred, I wouldn't conceal the gifts of the Spirit. I would contort them and then parade them like a laughingstock. I would masquerade as an angel of light and rob the church of the power and the beauty and the fruitfulness with which they are meant to be desired, received and used. This masquerade has sadly been a byproduct of the genuine aspects of the charismatic movement. Whether Baptist, United Reformed, Reformed, Pentecostal, AOG, Elim, Non-Denominational, Congregational, Church of England, Church of Scotland, Episcopal, Roman Catholic, Independently Catholic, Independent, Eastern Orthodox, Brethren, Exclusive Brethren, or whatever. The ongoing manifest dichotomy within Christian denomination has only compounded the paradox. As the world is going to hell, we are not meant to be divided. There are things over which we should not disagree. We are meant to be one, even as Christ and the Father are one. Please pause to read Acts chapter 2, verses 43, 2 to 47, especially verse 44. Let me say it very clearly. Largely as a result of this dilution of denomination and a wholesale willingness to agree to disagree rather than bottoming out some of the classic points of separation, the body of Christ has failed 
to lead society and culture as it should have done. Imagining the church under a Nazi Britain and a defeated Churchill, we might as well have remained at war, living under an oppressive regime as long as the church went truly underground, winced in persecution but remained faithful to the scriptures. Maybe Jesus would have returned already. The point is, in our freedoms, we are culpable for the fact that children in schools through Great Britain today have no concept of holiness or godliness or heterosexual marriage as the only way, or of gender only as a consequence of our being made in the image of God, who we can know personally and intimately. I'll say it again. Is 300 churches in the very small city of Edinburgh a justification or a condemnation of denomination? Would Yeshua have been in agreement with the body splitting in 300 radically different ways, with 300 radically different forms and traditions and theologies? No, he would not. And yet most of you reading this sentence now will resist leaving your denomination or reassessing your theological position with every fibre of your being. This is how far we have fallen. Jesus would say to us today, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Social Decay of Great Britain During these decades of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties and 2010s, and especially in these last five to ten years, we have also seen society itself change at an alarming rate. The pace of secular humanist erosion has reached unbelievable speed. Of course, Society and the body of Christ are hand in hand, or at least are meant to be as the church leads the way. But partly through the denominational contradictions above, and like the late King Edward VIII, as the church has abdicated its responsibility to rule and reign as the righteous extension of his sovereign scepter, the UK has crumbled in both cultural and spiritual terms. Consequently, Fierce LGBT ideologies have been simmering and incognito, and only now in these recent times have they fully broken cover, or perhaps not fully broken cover yet. The zeitgeist's publicly expressed desire to destroy the Judean Christian family unit is comparable with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's vow to wipe the nation of Israel from the face of the planet. These cultural terrorists have hijacked the symbol of the rainbow in exactly the same proud spirit of disdain for our creator God that prompted the watery destruction of earth in the first place. It has been under a banner of equality and inclusion, the demonic mantra of a generation, that this locomotive of Lemay's has gathered steam without doubt As the body of Christ, apart from a few pockets of prophetic grace and resistance, we have been virtually unaware of the presence of our very own dull Guldor. Perhaps only now is Sauron's stronghold beginning to be seen for what it actually is. Oh, how we must intercede for our children and our young people. Statistics released by the NHS have revealed that the number of children referred for hormone treatment to the Tavistock Centre has gone up from 97 cases in 2009 to 2,519 
in 2018. A 2,500% increase in just nine years. By assisting and encouraging transgenderism, the mermaids are passionate about supporting children, young people and their families to achieve a happier life in the face of great adversity. But who was the real troubler of Israel? Elijah or Ahab? Dear mermaids, what is the real adversity here? I'm not going to bore you by regurgitating statistics that you've read before that prove that the decay in the church is more than only dropping attendance figures. Google it. This is palpably clear, even to non-Christian parents who are bewildered that their five-year-old child is now given sex education at school, where they're also told they can choose which gender they are. Looking to Justin Welby, who, understandably, they consider to be their only guide, all they find is a pathetic nod of squinting consent. Similarly, I know some very popular conservative Scottish evangelicals here in Edinburgh whose full-time job it is to engage the body of Christ towards Bible engagement and Bible advocacy, because the church have stopped doing that themselves. Struth, they are apparently deeply encouraged by solitary statistical peaks of church growth in some wings of Pentecostal and charismatic denominations, but this skewed optimism to justify their employment is simply no longer going to wash. These same misleading statistical encouragements are a joke in light of the wider landscape of the body of Christ, not to mention the exodus of many faithful believers out of evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal churches and the rise of the toxic ex-evangelicals as a partial result. Body Zero demands a much more radical look at ourselves than a few lukewarm prayer meetings or church census publications. What a disgrace it is when large groups of Christians gather to consider statistical nonsense results while remaining obstinate in their denominational enclaves. There is a foghorn sounding. Since the 1940s, the Church of England has lapsed into ever-deepening depths of delusion, Increasing blitzkrieg pressure from the aforementioned LGBT zeitgeist have rendered the Judeo-Christian family on its knees. And as Jack Straw described on October the 2nd, 2000, the very cornerstone and essential building block of modern society. However, Straw did virtually nothing to address the ease and frequency with which marriages were being torn apart by easy divorce and unborn fetuses dismembered in their mother's wombs under the name of women's rights. It is all quite literally beyond belief. How can any government of any civilised society in the world today commission research to explore the connections between gross social harm and the alarming deterioration of the family unit, the consequent fallout into all areas of culture, and then proceed to ignore the results? It is a failure and an abuse of leadership that beggars belief, but that will one day be accounted for. As a consequence today, you are likely to be hatefully labelled hateful in upholding traditional definitions of marriage and of gender and sexuality. It is no wonder that much of the body of Christ today feels intimidated into silence. This is exactly the hope of the demonic spirit behind these invasive social changes. As I type... There is a government consultation happening in a theatre in Leith, in Edinburgh, to discuss so-called hate crime and new government legislation being considered as a result. 
But this is only a few months since Police Scotland and the Scottish Government themselves plastered a deeply blinkered and prejudiced political campaign all over Scotland on Scottish phone boxes that accused all people of, quote, religious faith as being bigoted and hateful for offering an alternative conviction about any number of different social issues. The wide feeling in Scotland about this from many people was one of shocked disbelief. We can no longer afford to underestimate the forces of darkness that have been and are behind the liberal, unbelieving, rebellious and compromised theologies dormant at Lambeth Palace and in other institutions. To have any sympathy today with this form of counterfeit spirituality is to bow the knee to just another species of the fear of man. It is a snare. Justin Welby writing to all C of E primary schools in November 2017 encouraging them to facilitate cross-dressing among their children is not something I am willing to sympathise with and neither should it be for you. The instituted harlot church of the United Kingdom is apostate. It is as simple and as tragic as that. That's not to say that God doesn't have his purposes in the current state of play or that he isn't any longer a God of grace, but it does mean that we have to face facts that are as clear as day. Like most adulterers, we're not very good at facing facts. Hence, we find ourselves back at Ezekiel chapter 16 and the prophet Hosea. Hosea, the left ventricle of God. To help you understand why Ezekiel 16 is probably my favourite passage in the Bible and how this relates to the second coming of Jesus within new global cultures of radical messianic eschatology, I'm going to ask you now to use your imagination with me. This will be easier for some of you than for others. In one sense, if your experiences in life have been largely or even totally pain-free or tragedy and disaster-free, you're disadvantaged in reading this. Why? Because Homer's main purpose is to connect us powerfully with the tragedy in God's own heart, the disaster of God's first creation, and the betrayal in God's own family. In other words, to connect us with the divine pathos of chapter 3. The express purpose of the prophets to the glory of God is to pique the sympathy in our own hearts and minds as modern-day readers of the Bible, as modern-day hearers of the Word. This sympathy is almost always via some form of personal empathy. Frighteningly, it is not beyond the realm of human depravity and Christian dysfunction to read the likes of Ezekiel 16 and not feel any empathy with God whatsoever. With that in mind, empathetically, therefore, is how we are supposed to read Hosea and the prophets, to relate with Almighty God and our Messiah and to come to know and love him more than we have. We can all too easily skim read and miss the profundity of what's going on in Hosea when we don't walk a mile in God's shoes and try to imagine how this would feel, the effect it would have on our heart and the resolve of character and love that would be needed to ensure redemption's ultimate victory. What's so important? Well, to answer this, I want to pose another one. Three hypothetical scenarios for you to consider. Which scenario below do you think would be most painful? Number one, for a friend you know and love to betray you through slander and gossip online. Number two, for a family member or a close friend to pass away. Or number three, for your husband or wife to leave you for another partner or partners. 
This is what seems obvious to me as the answer. The book of Hosea is a written account of the betrayed heart of God incarnate through the life of Hosea in such a way as to point us, and the nation of Israel even today, to the uniquely awful betrayal of a husband by his wife. This is not to belittle the awfulness of the other two scenarios that are also very painful, but it is to highlight the particularly awful reality of betrayal within the covenant of marriage. I cannot imagine a more painful thing than Mary leaving me for another man, for my marriage with her to collapse, for her to flagrantly abandon her marriage vows with me, and for everything I know to implode into a supernova of adultery. I simply cannot conceive of Mary leaving me to set up a brothel franchise in the heart of Edinburgh's red light district. I would rather die. Can you imagine what this would be like if your husband or your wife actually did this? If you're single, you can also use your imagination or imagine your mum and dad doing this to each other. Could there be a more profound betrayal and heart wound possible? I don't think that there could. This is the whole point of the book of Hosea and the 16th chapter of Ezekiel. To connect us with the deepest valley of pain and despair that the human heart and mind can comprehend. But for what purpose? So that we would come to love Jesus as we should, longing for his return by learning how gloriously lovely he is in redeeming you and me as the protagonists of the cosmic tragedy of covenantal breakdown. As an absolutely critical point of this book, of the bio-spiritual position of body zero, by prayerfully meditating on the uniqueness of the heart pain caused by betrothal betrayal, we will connect to the deepest affections of the heart of God that will provoke deeper fascination with the love of God, Jesus himself. I believe this is what Thomas Chalmers meant ministering in Edinburgh in the mid-19th century when he preached about the expulsive power of a new affection. When the deepest, heart-cutting reality of Jesus is revealed to the human heart, other demonic idols of addiction and idolatry will be forever displaced. Denominational allegiances will be ejected from our authentic corporate unity. In order to speak prophetically to a nation and to achieve redemption and righteousness for them, God invades, exposes and demands the masculinity of Hosea's ego, his social and spiritual reputation, his lineage, his peace, his joy, his sanity, his sexual satisfaction and purity and, most ultimately, the emotional bed of his heart. This is exactly what will happen to the body of Christ, the church, in the spiritual position of body zero. God, the Holy Spirit, longs to show us how much better God the Son really is, more than we've ever previously known. Only then will the unthinkable thought of the dissolution of denomination finally happen. God has a way of bringing us all to a place at exactly the right time, the place that we thought we'd never be willing to go and the place that we think we'll never be prepared to reach. Precious Lord Jesus, we come to you in prayer now and we thank you for the privilege of being able to do that. We come to you because 
you have made us to be the righteousness of God in yourself, in Christ Jesus, and we can only come before you because of that. And we confess to you today on this worldly Black Friday that we barely know you, that we barely understand your love, that we barely understand the price that you pay, that we barely understand the heart of God. I pray that you would help your people at this time, regardless of where they are on the earth, regardless of which country, regardless of which city, regardless of which denomination, and that you would move in fire on the hearts of every person, every disciple who would dare to claim the name of Jesus. And that you would reveal by your spirit of wisdom and revelation the summit, as it were, of your person, the summit, as it were, of God, the summit, as it were, of your redemption. We thank you now for loving us in our filth, in our unfaithfulness, in our adultery. And I pray, Lord, that it would be this burning reality, this burning revelation of your redeeming love, the love of Hosea for Gomer that would truly reform and prepare the church at this time. And we all pray in the precious name of Jesus for your glory, Father. And we all pray and say, Amen. Thank you everybody for listening. Don't forget this coming Sunday we've got the first three verses in our City of Temple series looking at Paul's exquisite, timeless letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, the message, the word, the sermon on love. Remember, love is a verb, but it's preeminently a noun. Love is not love. God is love. Only God is love. He's not loving. He is love. So check out that on Sunday morning. Join us. Check it out to your networks for us. And until next week, let's keep praying Ma and Arthur. Come, Lord Jesus. <laughs>